Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, Christine Benz and Susan Jabinski tell us how to tackle important financial tasks in 2022. Ben Johnson shares his insights on ETF trends from 2021. Russ Kinnell reflects on the year in funds. And Jason Kephart looks at whether the 60-40 portfolio held up in 2021. Let's get started. Here are Susan Jabinski and Christine Benz from Morningstar, Inc. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. The new year is upon us, and Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance and Retirement Planning, Christine Benz, has put together a month-by-month to-do list for investors in 2022. She's here today to discuss what financial tasks we should tackle in January. Hi, Christine. Happy New Year. Hi, Susan. Happy New Year to you, too. So you say the January kicking off the new year is a great time to really think about the big picture health of your plan. How do you go about doing that? Right. I like to think of this as kind of an inverted pyramid if you're thinking about your plan. So at the top of that pyramid would be, how am I doing? And if you are someone who's in accumulation mode, the key way that you measure that is thinking about your retirement savings rate or whatever uh, you are saving for, how are you doing toward that goal? I think for a lot of people in accumulation mode, it's wise to set their savings targets at about 15% of income. But certainly if you're a higher income worker, you should reach for an even higher savings rate, closer to 20%. So check on that. Spend some time with a good holistic retirement planning calculator. One I've long recommended is T. Rowe Price's Retirement Income Calculator, Vanguard's Retirement Nest Egg Calculator is also helpful. There's some good tools out there, sample an array of opinions to see how you're doing toward retirement readiness. And then if you're someone who's already retired, the key metric that you want to be paying attention to is what is your spending rate and does it pass the sniff test of sustainability? There's been a ton of research on this topic, including from our team at Morningstar, but you want to be revisiting that withdrawal rate to make sure that you are staying within the parameters that you've set out for yourself. So look at that spending rate. If you are someone who is just embarking on retirement, you'd probably want to be a little bit conservative in setting that initial withdrawal rate because we know that equity valuations are high. We know that bond yields are really low. We know that inflation is kind of an emerging threat. And so you'd probably want to set the bar pretty low in terms of starting withdrawals. The good news is that retirement portfolio balances are also up. So, Christine, the past year or so, we've been hearing a lot about the Great Resignation. And a pretty significant cohort of that group are people who retired earlier than they might have expected. So we're in 2022. Let's say you're someone who's thinking about retiring earlier than you might have planned. How should you be considering the decision? What should you be looking at and what should you be thinking about? Certainly time horizon is a really important consideration in this. So if you're a young retiree, if you're someone who is retiring, say in your 50s, and you think you have a 35 or 40 year time horizon, that means you should really be quite conservative in in terms of your starting with withdrawal rates. You don't want to just take 4% and run with it because we know that the longer the time horizon, the more careful you need to be in terms of of that withdrawal rate. Our recent research that looked at in retirement withdrawal rates would suggest that people with balanced portfolios with a more conventional time horizon of 25 to 30 years would start out at roughly 3.3% or mid 3%. 
uh, range, whereas people who have longer time horizons would need to be at an even lower level than that. There are certainly lots of things you can do in terms of varying your withdrawal rates. So there's a lot of power if you are willing to rein in your withdrawals in periods of market weakness. That could potentially let you take more in periods when the market is strong and more over your entire time horizon. So I would urge people just embarking on retirement to look at some of the flexible strategies because that is a way to lift your withdrawal rate, but it is a little bit of a bargain in that you need to be able to be prepared to tighten your belt if a weak market environment does materialize. So you also say that January, sticking with the big picture theme, is a good time to really take a good hard look at your household's capital allocation decisions. What do you mean by that? Right. We hear so much about asset allocation, how to allocate our investment portfolios. I think there's much less discussion about household capital allocation choices, but they're so important. And the thing is, we are each steering our Uh, savings to a variety of opportunities each month or each year. And so I think the idea is to think holistically about your plan. If you have a mortgage, for example, recognize that that's competing in your capital allocation structure alongside your retirement allocations. My personal bias is that for people who like certainty, uh, even though their mortgage rates may be nice and low, they've taken advantage of declining interest rates, that mortgage pay down can make sense, especially for people who are approaching retirement. Locking down that portion of your budget by retiring that mortgage can deliver a higher return on investment, certainly, than they could earn by investing in very safe securities within their portfolios. So I would urge people to, when they're thinking about their plan and where they plan to deploy their cash over the next year, to think about their household capital allocation in totality, and that means debts as well as savings opportunities. And then lastly, Christine, you say January is a great time to look at your retirement plan contributions. And we have some changes in 2022, right, as as far as how much you can contribute to different types of plans, right? That's right. So fairly uh, modest changes, but changes nonetheless. IRA contributions are staying the same for 2022. They will be 6000 for people under 50, 7000 if you're over 50. We're seeing a little bit of a change in terms of 401k, 403b, 457 contributions, those are going up to 20,500 for the under 50 folks and 27,000 for people who are 50 and above. And as we typically see each year, health savings account contributions are also going up a little bit. They're not technically retirement plans, but a lot of our readers and viewers, I think, do use their HSAs as such, sort of ancillary retirement savings vehicles. So revisit those annually because we do see a little bit of a nudge up in terms of how much you can put into the HSA. Well, Christine, thanks for your time today and for putting some things on our to-do list for January. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm Susan Chabinski. Thanks for tuning in. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, Ben Johnson from Morningstar Research Services discusses a record year for ETFs. Hi, I'm Susan Javinsky with Morningstar. 
Here today with me to discuss the year in ETFs and to look ahead to what 2022 might bring is Ben Johnson. Ben is Morningstar's Global Director of ETF Research. Hi, Ben. Nice to see you today. Glad to be here, Susan. All right, so let's dig in and talk about some headlines from 2021 when it comes to ETFs. First, we saw a couple of records smashed that year, the first being in terms of flows. What happened? Well, the big headline in 2021 is, as you alluded to, record flows. So through the end of November, we saw $794 billion in net new money poured into ETFs. That absolutely smashes the prior record set just last year to smithereens, which was $505 billion. Now, ETFs in 2021 surpassed that $505 billion flow mark in late July of this year. So the question isn't whether or not the record is going to be broken. It's been absolutely shattered. It's by how much as we look forward to the rest of the year. So what are people buying? What are investors buying? And maybe what hasn't resonated as much with ETF investors? Well, so often when it comes to investing, boring is best. And boring in the eyes of many investors this year, as has been the case for years now, is beautiful. Mm -hmm. So most of the money continues to flow into the most broadly diversified, the lowest cost, supremely tax-efficient, extraordinarily liquid exchange-traded funds. Investors are perfectly happy to pour their money into funds that are every bit as exciting as watching paint dry and grass grow at the same time. And really, the poster child for this category of funds is the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index ETF. VTI is the ticker for that fund, carries a Morningstar analyst rating of gold because it possesses all of those characteristics that I mentioned in spades. Now, VTI, which is the ETF share class of a bigger fund, a fund that today is $1.3 trillion big, has seen $40 billion of net new flows through the end of November 2021. That accounts for 5% of all flows into all ETFs, represents 24% organic growth for the ETF share classes assets in 2021, and is a case in point that investors are very happy to own a very broad, diversified uh, portfolio of stocks, pay a fee that's as small as humanly possible, uh, and to recognize, again, that boring is often best. Boring can be beautiful. So, and, and speaking of records, we also uh, saw another record broken in 2021, and that was the number of new ETFs that came to market. Talk a little bit about what we saw there. So a, another record in terms of new ETF launches that has been absolutely obliterated set just last year. We saw 300-plus ETFs launched in 2020, 400-plus launched in 2021. Now, what I would say is that as it pertains to ETF launches, we're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> Boring is certainly not a theme that you see among new ETF launches, which cover the waterfront, ranging from everything to funds that invest in stocks that have exposure to psychedelic drugs, to now Fidelity Magellan, the ETF, and everything in between. So, um Speaking of Fidelity Magellan, we did see um, the first uh, mutual fund to ETF conversions happen in 2021. First, talk a little bit about what that is and why fund companies pursued it and what happened. Well, this is really 
I think, an exclamation point on, on a trend that's been in place for quite some time. What we see is really the sun has begun to set on mutual funds, and you see that really come out when you analyze the flows data. And most incremental dollars, certainly in the equity space, are beginning to flow into ETFs as opposed to open-ended mutual funds. ETFs are becoming the format of choice for a growing number of investors. So if you look at even last year in 2020, what we saw is that the number of new ETF launches surpassed the number of mutual fund launches for the first time ever. Fast forward to 2021, and that gap has only grown. And to your point, we've seen the first ever mutual fund to ETF conversions. So that's mutual funds no longer wanting to be mutual funds, but to be ETFs, to offer the same benefits that ETFs offer to their investors, which really center around lower fees, superior tax efficiency, and just greater portability, more dynamism. The fact that ETFs, like stocks, trade on an exchange and are more broadly available and lesser investment amounts to a broader number of investors. So I think this is a trend that's only going to continue, if not accelerate, for the foreseeable future. So in 2021, we saw record-breaking flows, record-breaking new issuance of ETFs. What do you think we're going to see in 2022 when it comes to ETFs, Ben? I fully expect that we're going to see more of the same. Now, obviously, that's all with the all-important caveat that it depends, and it <laughs> depends in large part on, on what's happening in markets. So certainly the market environment in 2021 has been very favorable. Investors have had really no other choice than to come back to the punch bowl time and time again to continue to invest in the market. Should the market turn south for whatever reason, should investors get skittish, we could see the pace of flows into ETFs decelerate. But I, I think at the margin, you're going to see ETFs relative to mutual funds experience above normal growth. I think you're going to continue to see more and more new launches that take us ever further from the comfy, coza, comfy confines of Kansas. Um, and I, I think most of the money is going to continue to flow into the most broadly diversified, the most widely useful and usable ETFs, those that do good by a lot of different types of investors who are looking to invest against their long-term goals. Well, Ben, thank you for your perspective on this record-breaking year. And I'm sure we'll be talking to you throughout 2022 about perhaps some other records being broken. We appreciate your time. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, Susan. I'm Susan Javinsky with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Next, Russ Kennel from Morningstar Research Services shares his insights into funds in 2021. Hi, I'm Susan Chavinsky with Morningstar. 2021 was another successful year for this U.S. stock market and for funds that invest in it. Joining me today to discuss the year in funds is Russ Kennel. Russ is Morningstar's Director of Manager Research and Editor of Morningstar Fund Investor. Hi, Russ. Nice to see you. Glad to be here. So let's start out a little bit about talking about fund flows in general in 2021. What were the trends? Well, overall, we just had massive flows across the board. Uh, uh, but the real story is uh, passive once again dominating. Passive took in about three quarters of the of the money uh, coming into funds, uh, just about everywhere across the board. Bonds, uh, domestic stocks, foreign stocks, munis were about the only place where active took in more than passive. And then let's pivot over to performance for a minute and focus on U.S. stock funds first. Uh, which categories did best, which maybe didn't do as well, and why? 
Well, for a change, uh, value had its day. So categories like small value, value sectors like energy and financials did really well. And of course, the reason is we had uh, the economy crashing in 2020, uh, starting to come back in, in late 2020, then going really strong in 2021. And, and so uh, economically sensitive sectors and value came back strong. Uh, on the flip side, uh, emerging markets and long bond funds uh, were mostly in the red. Speaking of emerging markets, let's talk a little bit about international stocks and international stock funds in general relative to U.S. stocks and U.S. stock funds. How'd they do? Uh, relatively poorly. So that one long-running theme has continued. Uh, U.S. equity funds mostly had returns in the double digits in the 20s, uh, whereas international stock funds were more like 5 to 10%. Uh, and there were two main reasons. One, the U.S. economy was stronger than most of the other economies, but also a strong dollar meant uh, that effect was magnified because, of course, most uh, funds don't hedge their currency, so a strong dollar will uh, diminish uh, returns in a foreign fund. And let's talk a little bit about fixed income. Um, in general, how did fixed income funds do? But then were there particular categories that maybe did surprisingly well or not so well? Uh, yeah, the specter of uh, strong economy, rising infl inflation, uh, and, and the Fed potentially uh, raising rates uh, made it for a tougher year for bond funds. A lot of bond funds uh, lost money, uh, especially long-term bond funds. Uh, so on the flip side, those that did best were those that kind of fight inflation or, or interest rate uh, risk, that is TIPS, bank loan funds, high-yield funds, high-yield munis. Those all had nice gains. Let's talk a little bit about some high-profile funds in particular that might have had surprisingly good years. Uh, yeah, Oakmark Select and Dodge & Cox stock, again, continuing with our theme of a value uh, rebound. These are funds that, uh, though they have blend stocks as well as value, uh, they, they've really ha had fairly light uh, investments in uh, traditional growth sectors, but they had a lot in financials and others that have really come back strongly. So Oakmark Select and Dodge and & Cox, after having a bit of a rough stretch, have really come back strong in 2021. And what about some funds that are high profile and notable, but that maybe struggled a little bit in 2021? Uh, well, ARK Innovation really got smacked. Uh, you know, it gained over 100% uh, in 2020, so it's not too big a surprise. It would give some of that back in, in 2021 uh, as, you know, a lot of the growth names uh, have gotten hurt, um, particularly you know some of the the plays like Zoom and others that whose growth was based in part on working from home. Uh, another fund that that we like that that did uh, poorly, we we like it a lot more than Arc is uh, Alger Small Cap, but another uh, fund that's exposed to kind of very fast growing uh, stocks that also fin finished in the red. Um. Let's talk a little bit about some fund manager changes in 2021. Perhaps the biggest um, was the announcement from Fidelity just a few weeks ago that Joel Tillinghast was going to be retiring, not tomorrow, but a little bit down the road from low price stock. Talk a little bit about what we think of that retirement and, and any others that you think are particularly noteworthy for 2021. Sure. You know, I, I think um, this is a really unique manager transition because what Tillinghast was doing was unique, uh, running a massive portfolio 
uh, focused in mostly small and mid-cap names uh, with, with nearly a thousand uh, names in the portfolio. So I think this is going to be a real challenge, which is why we downgraded the fund from silver to bronze. Uh, uh, Sam Chemovitz and, and Morgan Peck are, are uh, good managers, but this is a really uh, big challenge for them to run. So we still like the fund, but uh, you've got to recognize that not everyone is Joel Tillinghast. Uh, very few people can do what he did. Uh, another prominent change I would highlight is uh, Tiro Price Blue Chip Growth, where Paul Green uh, took over for Larry Puglia. Um, we feel a little bit better about that manager transition. Uh, we've got it rated silver because the strategy will be the same and, and Green is a, a, a good experienced manager uh, with a good track record. So Russ, lastly, gaze into your crystal ball for 2022. What might fund investors see? Well, I mean, I think some trends are very certain to continue, and that is uh, declining fees, uh, flows continuing to go uh, towards passive, and, and the ETF world continuing to grow. Um, we've had a pretty good run here, so certainly there's the potential uh, for the, the market giving something back. And I think all eyes are really going to be on the Fed because uh, the Fed might actually raise rates, and and uh, you know that's that's a, a big deal. It's been a while since uh, the Fed had to do that, so so I think you're going to spend a lot of time listening to people talking about uh, those sort of macro issues. But of course, as investors, we can control our own individual uh, plan, and and that's what's really important. Is even if the the macro uh, story shifts, you want to keep your eyes on your plan and, and stay on target. Well, Russ, thank you so much for your time and for your perspective today. And I look forward to talking with you more in 2022. Sounds good. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Lastly, Jason Kephart from Morningstar Research Services reflects on the 60 portfolio performance this past year. I'm Susan Javinsky with Morningstar. As we rolled into 2021, some market watchers proclaimed that the 60% stock, 40% bond portfolio was dead. Were they right? Joining me today to discuss how the 60-40 portfolio held up in 2021 is Jason Kephart. Jason is a strategist with Morningstar's multi-asset funds research team. Hi, Jason. Nice to see you. Thanks for having me, Susan. So let's start at the beginning and with a little bit of a refresher on what the 60-40 portfolio is and how it sort of became this standard um, benchmark for balanced asset allocations. Yeah, the 60-40 has become like kind of a rule of thumb starting asset allocation. It typically falls into kind of the moderate risk uh, bucket. So for investors that don't want to take all the risk from the stock market, want something a little bit more balanced, that 60-40 portfolio kind of falls in that sweet spot. Jack Bogle used to like to say he invests half his money in stocks and half his money in bonds. That way, half the time he's mad he doesn't have more stocks, and half the time he's mad he has too many stocks. And we know historically the odds are in the favor of stocks outperforming bonds over any given time period. So I think that's how you get go from 50-50 to 60-40. You kind of tilt the odds a little bit in your favor. So unpack for us why there was so much talk earlier in 2020 about how the 60-40 portfolio was dead. What were the factors that were sort of driving those comments? What's funny is it's not the first time people have proclaimed the 60-40 dead. After the financial crisis of 2008, when we had the so-called lost decade in stocks, you had a lot of people proclaiming the same thing, that the 60-40 was dead. You can't trust the stocks in your portfolio. You need alternatives. You need all these other things. Um, and now this year, 
Well, coming into this year, we heard the same thing, but now it wasn't the stocks that were the problem. Now it's the bonds. Interest rates are low. There's nowhere for them to go but up. And so rising interest rates um, are going to be bad for your bond portfolio. Potentially, potentially high inflation could be another headwind. So that was kind of the all the things that people thought would really kill the 60-40. And in 2020, we actually had the perfect storm of that happen. Um, rates are higher today than they were a year ago. Inflation is significantly higher than it's been. And yet, the 60-40 is alive and well. Yeah, so how did it do? That's what I want to get to. It's not quite dead yet, is it? Yeah, so um, through the end of November, um, the 6040s returned about 15%. And I'm using uh, just a generic stock and bond 6040 portfolio, for example, here. So about 15%. And uh, so a real return, after you adjust for inflation, even with high inflation, that's about an 8% real return, which is pretty great. I looked at the rolling 12-month real returns for the 6040 since 2000. The median over that last 21 years is about 7.5. So it's actually outperformed its median real return over that time period. So even though all this doom and gloom kind of came true, it didn't derail the 60-40. And why not? Like, what did the naysayers get wrong about this? I think the naysayers got wrong just um, having this myopic focus on the fixed income portfolio. In the 60-40s, fixed income's not really there to be a return driver. It's there to balance out the risk from your equity portfolio. And, you know, the bonds did have a bad year. Like the Barclays Ag is down about 1%, 1.5% year-to-date. But stocks are up 22%, the U.S. stock market. So that's really what carries the 60-40. Whether or not the 60-40 is going to deliver depends far more on how the stock part of it does than the bond part of it. And even though we have seen interest rates rise, stocks have still done very well year-to-date. So... Speaking of expectations, you know, what do you think investors should be expecting for the 60-40 portfolio going forward, given where interest rates are and where the stock market valuations are today? Yeah, there might be some short-term volatility. Um, you know, if we get another taper tantrum-like situation where rates rise fast enough that they cause the stock market to kind of tumble. And typically what you'd see is that is going to really affect like the high, the high PE stocks, the growth stocks. So if you have a balanced portfolio between growth and value or something like the SP 500, that's not going to be as big of a problem, I think, for you. Um, but I think generally, given where stock valuations are and interest rates are, you probably would want to set your expectations a little lower going forward. One thing you do to kind of, I think, um, maybe improve your chances of success is look at a more internationally diversified 60-40. So Vanguard Balance Index is kind of your classic U.S. only. Vanguard Life Strategy Moderate Growth is a very similar uh, fund, 60-40 equity and bond split, but it holds a bunch of international equities in addition to it. So, you know, we've had this decade where U.S. stocks have just really crushed the rest of the world. So one thing I think you could do to improve your odds are, you know, think a little bit more diversified than just U.S. stocks and bonds. Now, lastly, Jason, you mentioned earlier in our conversation that, you know, this 60-40 is a benchmark and that it is an allocation for some people who maybe don't want to go all in on the stock market. But, like, from a practical standpoint, you know, people always hear that they should use, you know, their time horizon and their goals and the size of their portfolio to really determine what their asset mix should be. So for most people, is the 60-40 portfolio most useful as just a commentary on the value of diversification? How do you think investors should think about it? Yeah, I think it's definitely not something for a short-term investment. Um, with 60% stocks, you're going to have volatility. You could have drawdowns in 2008, 2020. Drawdowns were a little north of 20%. So that's kind of your downside risk. So if you're investing for something 6, 12, even 18 months from now, a 60-40 probably a little too volatile for that. 
But I think if you have a long time horizon, it's a very good starting point. And it's proven very difficult to beat because the stocks and bonds, when it's like an investment grade bond portfolio, really balance each other out nicely. And, you know, unless the co that correlation between those two really significantly changes, which, you know, it's hard to see how it would, um, though it could over shorter periods. I think it's a really good long-term investment, and it's definitely a, been a very hard benchmark to beat. Well, Jason, we're going to be revisiting this with you in 2022 because we know you'll be watching it. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We're taking a brief holiday hiatus and we'll return to publishing on Friday, January 7th. In the meantime, stay up to date with all of the latest Morningstar research and ratings by visiting Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.